what would what would happen here if God moved in a truly mighty way? I mean, I, I mean, in a way we've not seen before firsthand in our lives. Maybe we've read about this in Scripture. We've read about it in our church history books. But what if a spiritual awakening happened uh, here on the south side of Atlanta and tens of thousands of people were saved over a short period of time and started just streaming into local churches around here, including ours? I mean, we're having 20, 30, 50 people uh, each Sunday who've come to know Christ and being baptized. Would everybody be thrilled with that? Would every Sunday be a celebration? I'm sure there would be much of that. But let me tell you what I think would happen. Um, Some would rejoice and some would leave. You're, You're mistaken if you think that all Christians would celebrate a true mighty movement of God. We would hear Complaints over time, not immediately, but over as the weeks and months roll on. Complaints about all these new people coming into the church. We lose our influence. We lose our power. We'd hear accusations about a lack of sincerity and questioning whether their conversion was genuine, whether their faith was true, and because they bring all this baggage and all this past and so much work to be done in sanctification. We'd We'd, we'd accuse. We'd, you'd hear concerns about changes that would impact us and our personal comfort and our personal preferences. Your, little, your, little, your space would be uh, encroached upon and you might not have your seat on Sunday morning or your parking spot if you have one of those and invisible sign that has your name on it that we're all supposed to know and respect. You, you, you'd lo- you love the family feel here, but you'd think, man, we've lost that. Or you'd, you'd see divisions between old and new members. But this is what I mean. We could actually be witnessing this massive outpouring of God's grace and think it's a bad thing. Isn't that crazy? Is it, would that be because we are such bad people? Because we have bad theology? Because we don't know our Bibles? Not necessarily. You can be an outwardly good Christian. You can be a good person like us. we and you can have a very ungodly attitude. I know this in my own heart. You can have sound theology and be unaffected by it. You can know your Bible and yet be out of touch with the heart of God that we've been begging the Lord to produce in us today. Why? Well, we've, we know why. We've been saying this throughout this series. Because we are Jonah. We are Jonah. We, look in, we, we just read this in Jonah 4. When, when God showed this great grace towards Nineveh, Jonah interpreted that as a great evil. Isn't that crazy? It's a prophet of God. He's so unhappy about this merciful, mighty working and movement of God that he actually says, I, I just want to die. It's so bad. I want to leave, get mad and leave this world. Well, this morning, as I said, we come to the end of this short series that we've, we've, we've been through for the last five weeks in the book of Jonah. And it's a strange way to end this account. I think you have to admit that. I, I know many of us are familiar with the book of Jonah. If you grew up going to Sunday school, this was a, this was a popular go-to place for Sunday school teachers because of the fish and all that. And we, and we, we hear all about it, but I don't ever remember hearing Jonah 4 taught as a child. Because what do you do with this with a bunch of, you know, five, six-year-olds? And how do you explain it's ending. We, we get the other. This is, this, is, this is different. And so I, 
so it's a strange ending. I, I think I may have shared this story before, but I was thinking about it again. Uh, I've shared it maybe in our small group at least. But Brooke and I were flying home from an overseas trip. Uh, I think we maybe it was maybe it was when we went to visit the Flintoffs in France and some other missionary friends of ours. But we're flying home on a transatlantic flight, and we were watching the in-flight movie. And it was it was uh, it was a romantic comedy, and uh, I think it was it was uh, One Day, starring Anne Hathaway. Not that that matters, but uh, and I think this was before you could choose your own movies. I don't remember if it was one that we got to pick out, or or we were um, if it was just on the screen, and that's what everybody was watching. I think it was that, um, but but it's a uh, your typical uh, rom com, predictable plot line, happy ending. You're thinking that's that's it's just the kind of movie Brooke loves. And uh, so she's right. She's this is great. Everything's coming together at the end of the movie. Every looks like everybody's going to live happily ever after. All the loose ends are going to get tied up. The movie's almost over, and so it's this bright, sunny day in this European little town village. And and Anne Hathaway's character, she's riding her little cute vintage bicycle through town, and probably has fresh cut flowers in a basket, and smiling from ear to ear. It's just wonderful. Everything's come together. She turns down an alley. And goes out the other end, and a truck comes and hits her and kills her. And I started, I just burst out laughing. (laughs) Not appropriate. And it's not because it was a funny scene, but I knew how Brooke was going to respond to that. I I knew this would just eat her up, because this is not the kind of ending she likes. But I thought about that as we get into this ending of Jonah. It's a lot like that, in a sense. It's unexpected. It's sad. But you almost have to laugh because it's so ridiculous. And you think, you can't be serious. <laughs> well, that, that did not just happen. <laughs> After all that's transpired. Why couldn't the book of Jonah end in chapter 3? It'd be this, this incredible story about this prophet who ran from God and was stopped by God and turned back to God and obeyed God and was used mightily by God and, and to bring about this greatest spiritual awaken, awakening in the history of the world. The end. I mean, Jonah could have been legendary. And we, 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 would, we would love this story. But the story doesn't end with chapter 3. And in a sense, it doesn't really end in chapter 4. It just, it just, Jonah's life's just spiraling downward and the story just kind of peters out. And the last sentence in the book is strange. It's a question. It's like, what? This is not how you end a story like this. The, the book of Jonah ends with God asking this question about compassion. And it taken at face value, the last question, it's almost like God's asking Jonah for advice. What, 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 what should I really care about, Jonah? Where should I direct my compassion? But it's clear the Lord's not looking to his prophet for counsel. The Lord is giving this gracious and tender, but firm and piercing rebuke to his prophet. And I believe this is a rebuke we need. It's to one degree or another, because to one degree or another, we are all Jonah. We are much more like him than we would probably like to admit. This passage says to us today, there are no limits to God's compassion. No one is beyond the reach of his grace. And so however, however big you think God's heart is, let me just tell you, it is bigger. 
However you, wide you think His mercy is, it's wider. We, you, you, we can't conceive of the in, infinite love of God. Uh, and so every single one of us needs this today. If you feel like an outsider here today, you need this. That's what I mean. If you, if you believe the lie that, you, that, that, that grace can't reach you, that you've sinned too much, that you've gone too far, that you made an irredeemable mess of your life, that, that, that somehow you've disqualified yourself from God's grace and His care, then this passage pleads with you. No one is beyond the reach of God's compassion. So please hear that tender message today. But also, for those of us, you may, you may, you may be an insider. This, we need this. If you're a religious person and you struggle, you, can't, you almost can't help but look down on other people, certain individuals or certain groups of people because of who they are or what they've done or what they're like. Instead of loving the lost or at least certain types of lost people, you find the tendency to ignore them or to even loathe them. You and I need this. This message, the same message prods us and it says no one is beyond the reach of God's compassion. We both need it. This is for all of us. It gives hope to ruined sinners and outcasts. It, gives, it, it also makes war on the prejudices that, that reside in the self-professed righteous ones. And so we, we need this. This morning we're going to see two features to this ending to Jonah. We're going to see Jonah's anger in those first few verses, and then we'll see God's answer. And so when we, we look at Jonah's anger, what I want you to see is that grace offends good people. I ended last week's message with that statement, but I'll say it again. Grace offends good people. Jonah is a good guy. We are him. (laughs) He's religious. He's a prophet of God. He's moral. He hates the wickedness of the Ninevites, as he should. He's a Bible guy. He knows what the scriptures teach. He has sound theology. He he knows about God's character. You, You would think a good guy like Jonah then would be absolutely elated about what's happened to Nineveh. I mean, most preachers would give their right arm to be used by God like Jonah was used there in Nineveh. You think he'd be just completely overjoyed, overwhelmed with gratitude to God and, and for turning Israel's fiercest enemies to, back, or to the Lord and seeing their faith and repentance. But this history-making event has the exact opposite effect on Jonah. Instead, it drives him, as we just read, to deep bitterness and anger towards God. Now, he came off looking pretty bad in chapter 1 when he said no to God and ran from what God wanted him to do and ran from his presence, was trying to get out of God's presence. This is worse. This is worse. Here he's in God's face, giving him the what for. He's reduced to this whimpering, sniveling, Whiner who's just throwing this temper tantrum before God. Let's look at it again. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It, the, the literal translation of Hebrew, it was a great evil to Jonah. God's salvation of the Ninevites. Jonah looks at that. This is a great evil to me. Great display. You can't overstate this. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. And say, it's always great to pray when you're really ticked off at God. Oh Lord, is this 
not what I said when I was yet in my own country. So while it wasn't recorded for us in Jonah 1, apparently he, he explained to God, this is why I'm not going. This is why it's a bad idea to go to Nineveh, because this is what's going to happen. He says, that, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So this wonderful love and mercy and grace of God that we've been singing with joy and tears of thanksgiving in our heart this morning, Jonah turns back on God and says, that's offensive. Bad attitude or not, he knows the stuff. He has sound theology, but it's useless theology to him. So he, he, he knows that foundational Israelite confession that Patrick read earlier uh, at the beginning of the service in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. So where God out of the mouth says, this is who I am. Now it's interesting that in, as Jonah turns that back to God, he leaves off the part about justice. And he only uses the parts that in his mind were somewhat offensive in, in the context of what God has done in saving the Ninevites to God. But, but Jonah... He's not ignorant of who God is or what God is like. That's not the case. He's not angry because of some false perception of God because he has bad theology. No, he's angry because of a true perception of God. He knows what God is like. He doesn't like it. He's a good guy. There's this major disconnect between the truth that he knows and the life that he's living. Between this, this gap between his head and his heart. I don't want to overplay that, but you understand what I mean. Between his aptitude and his attitude. And so it's not so much a theological struggle or conflict that Jonah has with God. It's an, it's an experiential one. The theological agreement Jonah has with God isn't translated into a heart agreement. He doesn't have God's heart for Nineveh. Why? Because grace offends good people like Jonah. Mercy is only beautiful to those who think they need mercy. And that's not where Jonah is. To those who don't think they need mercy, it's, it's somewhat offensive. If I were, uh, if, if just, let's just say I were to challenge Philip Stout, if everybody doesn't know Philip, he might be able to bench press a little bit more than I can. I don't know, I'm just, just guessing. Um, no, he can. And if I were to challenge Philip to an arm wrestling contest, and, and uh, instead of immediately slamming my hand to the table within, you know, a split second, he pin, puts me down and I'm like an inch off of the table and he's just toying with me. He's just smiling and not even breaking a sweat. And I've got both hands and I'm trying to, trying to get Philip, uh, try, trying to get his hand to move a, a, just a, a little bit. And he's holding me. But in that position, I say to him, you want mercy, Philip? Or you, you, want, you, want me to, you, you better start pleading for mercy. What is that? At that moment, mercy isn't beautiful to Philip. <laughs> Why? Because he doesn't need mercy. <laughs> mercy isn't beautiful. Mercy is offensive, or in this case, it's just silly. Because uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't need it. Well, Jonah is offended by mercy <laughs> because he sees himself, I don't need it. I'm the good guys. I'm the good ones. And those people don't deserve it. This is what what Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees and what he pointed out in them. They they didn't think they needed mercy. They were the righteous ones. So they hated the fact that Jesus was extending grace and compassion and love to prostitutes and tax collectors and the outcasts. Mercy is for bad people. 
I mean, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But the Pharisees didn't realize, hey, we're the sick ones. We're sick. We're sick with sin. And, and therefore, they didn't realize their desperate need for, for mercy from Christ. And so they didn't find it beautiful then when Jesus extended that mercy to others. If you see yourself as a basically worthy person, that God owes you good things, grace will be troubling to you and compassion won't come very easily. You'll be resentful when you see God blessing other people in ways that they don't deserve. That will gnaw on you. Whenever God's good... Let me just... This is a little warning. Whenever God's goodness to someone else feels like a slight to you, that's not good. But we have this tendency in our hearts, don't we? This is where Jonah is. God's goodness to the Ninevites, it didn't hurt Jonah that God was saving them. What harm did that do to him? But it feels like the slight to him. That's a heart that's not aware of his own desperate need for God's grace and mercy. But when you realize how badly we need mercy ourselves, then mercy towards others becomes a beautiful thing too. But as long as we put ourselves in the category of the good people, we just need a little polishing every now and then, take off some of the little small rough edges that we have, but we're really good people. If that's what we think, we will be troubled by the wideness of God's mercy and the extent of His compassion to those who don't deserve it. So Jonah, he resents God's mercy to the Ninevites. Verse 3, we see the depth of it. Therefore now, O Lord, just please take my life from me. It's not worth living. This is how you're going to behave, God. And, and the tragic irony, though, is he resents the mercy to the Ninevites, but there's no, there's no one who needed the grace and mercy of God in that moment more than Jonah. Now, and he receives it. And this is what's so amazing. I'm amazed at God's response to Jonah here. And, and I'm grateful for it. The Lord deals so gently with him. I mean, I put myself in the shoes of God, which I know is a dangerous mind game to play. But Jonah says, please take my life. I say, okay, you're dead. The end. Or at least I say, after all that I've done for you, after all the mercy that I've shown you and the times that I've, I've protected you and saved you, and, and now you're coming and you're raising your voice and anger, me, anger at me, Jonah, this time I am coming down hard on you with a heavy hand. But that's not what God did. That's not what He does with us. Instead, God, God gives Jonah these, this, this question and these three object lessons to help him, to correct him, to expose him. That's the second feature of this ending of Jonah. We see God's answer. God's answer. And it's just God, God relentlessly pursues the grace offended. He relentlessly pursues the grace offended. Look at God's question to Jonah as he's on the ground, kicking and screaming, throwing his temper tantrum. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Do you do well to be angry? That's a profound question when you think about it. I mean, this is a good, this is a good, this is not a bad question for us to ask ourselves really all the time. You know, when you're struggling with anger, ask yourself, Justin, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be proud, to boast? Do you do well to be impatient? Do you really do well to, to, to crave the attention and the approval of other people? 
You do well to lie here. You do well to lust. That's, that's a good question. But notice Jonah, he doesn't answer the Lord. He just ignores God's question. I think I have a picture again of like a two-year-old. You, you know, you have this parental moment and you, you ask a question that's to pierce their heart. They just get mad and leave and won't answer. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he mopes his way out of town, finds a good spot on a hill east of the city and, and plops down in his lawn chair and, and is going to sit and watch to see what happens. And so he makes this little booth, which is just a little shelter, a little shade canopy, and, and, and he have to take some twigs and branches and tumbleweed-like stuff, whatever's around, which wasn't a lot, but he, he kind of rigs together this little shelter. And he plops himself down to see if anything, what, or if anything would happen to the city. And so he's still holding, he's holding on to this vain hope that perhaps God would show pity on him, on Jonah. And, and, and maybe his, after his little, til, little temper tantrum, maybe God kind of gets it and he, won't, he will decide to wipe, Jonah, or wipe Nineveh out after all. That's what he's hoping. Maybe my pouting convinced God that my hatred for them is actually a righteous hatred and he should hate them too with the same hatred that I have and maybe God will decide to destroy them after all. And if so, I want to have a front row seat for this. This could be good. And, but, but, but it's here on this hill, in the depths of this struggle within Jonah, that God brings these object lessons to teach him and to teach him about compassion, to teach him about his Lord. And so we'll have these three object lessons, and I'll just say it this way, a weed, a worm, and a wind. And so just to alliterate it, a weed, a worm, and a wind. So the lesson of the weed first. So at the peak of Jonah's rage, when he's really, he's really frustrated and struggling, he's sitting there pouting in the sweltering heat, that God causes a miracle to happen. And so this booth that Jonah made for himself, it gives very little protection from the sun and the heat. It's just... You know, there's all kinds of sun coming through. And, you know, God provides him a much better shade. Look at verse 6 again. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. I can appreciate shade overhead, trust me, uh, to save him from his discomfort. Now, I know there are people who try to figure out what kind of plant this is. And there are, I mean, good guesses of plants that grew in that area. And, and there are articles and sermons that really talk a lot about this. Honestly, I don't think that's the point. The bottom line is this is a miracle. This is a bona fide miracle. And uh, it's not because of the climate and that region. and the, Nothing grows this fast. This is, super, this is growth at a supernatural rate. And so I don't think the key is to identifying the plant type. But some kind of plant. It's, maybe the idea of here is a gourd or, or just, but really it's a weed. Something growing wild out there. It grows up and it gives... Jonah, a much greater amount of shade from this intense sun. And so God, what is he doing? He's showing Jonah compassion. Does Jonah deserve this? No. No, not at all. But the very kind of compassion Jonah resented, the very kind of compassion that offended him when it was directed at the Ninevites, now God is showing Jonah. And what is he? He's loving it. Verse 6, again, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And I think you can pick it up even in your English translations, that connection between he was exceedingly displeased about 
God's decision to relent concerning the judgment of the Ninevites. Now he's exceedingly glad over this plant. Great gladness. So despite Jonah's bitterness, despite this rebelliousness against God, and don't see it as anything less than that. It's not just, well, Jonah's just, he just really wanted the Ninevites to get it. No, his real beef is with God. He's saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to run this universe. You, 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 I'm questioning your fitness as the sovereign ruler. You, you, this is what he's doing. He's questioning God's character. But despite all of that, what does God do? He gives him this token of grace from his hand. And that's the, that's the lesson of the weed. Is that compassion is for sinners, not saints. That's a lesson we desperately need to learn, brothers and sisters. Because we find this residue of hatred, Jonah-like hatred in our hearts towards the very ones that God loves and longs to show mercy towards. This is what God's exposing in Jonah. If we, if we could only have the veil of God, God's heart that we've been asking him for, if we could just have it pulled back to, to, see the people as, to see people as he sees them, I think we would be shocked. I think we would be shocked. One writer said it this way in kind of an opposite direction. Listen carefully. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Listen, we, we, we love the world as an abstract category. We love our community as, a, as an idea. But do we love the people? Do we love, do, do we, do we love specific sinners, specific types of sinners? Or do we hold on to hatred and prejudice and anger over certain types of lost people? Is there, maybe it's over because of a different ethnicity or a different culture, people of a different socioeconomic status or different education level, people in a different geographical area, location, certain religions. Do you have hatred for Muslims? People of certain lifestyles that we, you find particularly objectionable. This, is, this lingers in us. All of us. I'm not, it's not the person next to you. We all have this Jonah inside of us. We, we, are, we don't have the heart of God as we should. The wideness of his compassion that we so need. I just, there's, a, there's an opportunity every week when I uh, see the local newspaper hit my doorstep and and oftentimes I'll go on there and read the comments online and uh, whatever, certain articles. And it's so discouraging. And it, it's, it's, it causes me to drop to my knees and pray, God, what do, you, what do we do? But there's so much prejudice and racism and anger and hatred and division just in our little local community. And it's going, I'm not talking about one group, it's going in all directions, people. And I can, I can only imagine that many of those people who leave these horrible comments profess to be Christians and probably attend churches in this county I don't know maybe they're just trolls from living out of state or I don't know but I, I can't imagine that not many of them aren't just there was an article this week about a, a, an awful crime that was committed in Fayetteville a very sad story and, and with a domestic issue I was just reading the story last night and I looked down at the comments there were seven comments on the citizen. Here are two of them. 
I knew we should have built a wall between Clayton and Fayette. And this is another one. Kind of sad to see hometown turning into Clayton County. Keep in mind, all people in the story were Fayette County residents. There was not a word mentioned about Clayton County, and there was no evidence that, that this was anybody that, except that lived in Fayette County. But this is the assumption. I'm not trying to make a political statement here, and I realize I'm treading on thin ice, but as a pastor of a church that practically straddles the Fayette-Clayton County line, this kind of talk has no place here, brothers and sisters. Amen? We cannot have this. I know, I know but I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not, I'm not trying to scold. I'm, I understand, but I also don't want you to think like, all right, we're good. No, we have it. If it may not be that, it may not be across the county line, but we have our versions of this. Every single one of us does. We're Jonah. And so this, this, this is a church that has folks across those county lines and in many other counties around this area, and that's the way we want it to be, and we want our church to more and more reflect this area, which Corinth Road goes back and forth. I don't understand where any lines are drawn on this road. It makes no sense to me, and that's just fine with me. It doesn't matter. God's heart beats just as strong regardless of where your address is here. And ours should too. Listen, God knows how to deal with Ninevites. He knows how to deal with, quote, those people, bad people. But he also knows how to deal with smug, proud, self-righteous church members. He knows how to, he knows how to deal. I'm not saying, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying we have this residue in our hearts. Now the question of, God, what are you going to do about the Ninevites? That's not so pressing anymore. The question as you work through this story is, God, what are you going to do about Jonah? (laughs) That's the real story. What are you going to do with this prophet who's talking and thinking and has his attitude like this? What are you you going to do? And again, we're him. Second lesson. I've got to accelerate. The lesson of the worm. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now, so here God, one, late, one day later, destroys the very plant that he appointed to provide shade for Jonah's head. Now, you read that, you think, is God being a little capricious here? Uh, there, there, that horrific story about the California family of all the kids that they were starving and abusing. It, just awful, awful, awful. But one of the, one of the uh, aspects of their story that came out is they would buy bikes and toys for their kids and would then either give them to them and then take them back and not let them play with them or just let them see them and not have them. It was just to torture them. It was just to, it was to manipulate them. And it's just, That's evil. It's capricious. Is this, what, is this what God's doing? Gives them plant, takes it back. Why does God do this? What is, this, is, this is not that. This is God graciously teaching a lesson that he desperately needed to learn. And it's this, the lesson of the, the worm. Compassion is for people, not things. It's for people, not things. Look ahead to verse 11. God himself points out to Jonah, points out to us the obvious irony of this situation. Jonah's angry. He's ticked off for, for God destroying this shade plant. And, and he's even angrier that God hasn't destroyed the Ninevites. And, and so, but this worm is used by God to expose how sin-sick the heart can be. That we could care so much for a weed and yet not care for people. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant 
For which you did not labor, and you, nor did you make it grow, which came into a being in a night and perished in a night. You didn't do anything for this little weed at all. And should I not then pity Nineveh, Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also many cattle? When he says 120,000 persons who don't know from the right hand from the left, uh, that, uh, there's different ideas. Some say this is, refers to their spiritual or moral ignorance, that, that just the, the people, the residents of the city, they didn't know right from wrong. That kind of a thing. I'm inclined to agree with, with many, most scholars probably, who say this probably refers to children. Young children, 120,000. So if you have 120,000 babies and toddlers, probably have a, town, a city of about 600,000 people, maybe up to a million people. That's a lot of people. And Jonah's hoping to see them all destroyed. That would make him happy. What a, what a hateful attitude. But what makes it worse is he turns to this weed and has great pity on it. Has great compassion on it. These Ninevites, even these children, even the cattle would be more suitable suitable uh, objects for Jonah's compassion than this gourd that he didn't plant or make grow or do anything about. God's saying to him through this word, little worm, Jonah, you're wasting your pity on a weed. Aren't these people, aren't these children, even these cattle, more worthy recipients of your compassion? We need this lesson because we care so much about things. Maybe not gourd plants. Maybe you have a gourd plant that you just really care about. I don't know. Um, But about other things, things that make us comfortable, like this weed made Jonah comfortable. Do you care more about the volatility in the stock market and how your investments are affected, then you care about the civil war that's raging in Yemen right now with a half million children who are on the brink of starvation, of death by starvation. I mean, which headline really gets your blood racing, heart pumping? You care more about your azaleas or your lawn than you do about the family across the street who's apparently struggling and You see multiple generations living there and there are all kinds of broken down cars littering the driveway and haven't cut the grass in a year. Which which matters more? You care more about your political opinions than you do about millions of Muslims who are heading for eternal wrath, including all those children who don't know their right hand from their left. They didn't choose to be born into those families and into a family that had no exposure to the gospel. So what, what, what matters more? I'm not, again, it's not, I'm not trying to layer guilt. I'm, and I'm not saying that's not going to do anything to motivate us. But I, this is the question that, that God's confronting Jonah with. It's, do you care more about things than people? Do the concerns of your heart reflect the concerns of God's heart? Are we more like Jonah than we'd like to admit? I think we probably are. Is there a major major gap between what we're we're passionate about and what God is passionate about? So that's the lesson of the worm. Last lesson, the lesson of the wind. Verse eight: When the sun arose, God appointed so the so the vine grow the the weed grows, the worm eats it. Now the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. 
So the, the, the wind, uh, living in Southern California, and you see the headlines with all the fires and everything out there, it's similar to the, like the Santa Ana winds that just these hot, uh, you know, intense winds that come out of the desert and, and, and ca- again, cause fires to spread so fast. But even this, this is more sudden. This is more supernatural in, in its intensity. But it's this other object lessons for Jonah. And the, jo- the lesson for here is that compassion is for others, not ourselves. Compassion is for others, not ourselves. You notice in all of this, notice the one person Jonah did feel sorry for, himself. He is compassionate. He's intensely, he has intense pity, but it's all directed at himself. And, and, and so he chose to become bitter and angry and full of self-pity. That, the whole chapter just drips with self-pity. And, and he's, he's mad about the, Nineveh's, about the Ninevites' repentance. Then he's happy about this plant that gives him comfort. Now he's, he's angry again about the worm and the wind. And he's, in verse 8, he's asking again to die. And so this, this hot wind that God sends, it blows away this hypocritical exterior and exposes Jonah for who he really is. Jonah, you're, you're just concerned about yourself. Full of pity for himself. Void of care for others. Pity, compassion, that's powerful. It's good when it's directed at others. But it is no good at all when it's turned in on ourselves. And we often find ourselves, save your compassion for others. Don't use it on yourself. Verse 9, God reiterates this tender plea, uh, the the same plea of verse 4, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah's reply, it's shocking. It's brash, it's reckless. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, if I was Jonah's counselor at this point and was sitting down with him and he's telling me this part of the story and he gets to the point where he says, well, and God said to me, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And I said, absolutely I do. I, I'm, so, I'm so angry and I, I do well to be angry, angry enough just to, I want to die. Honestly, at that point, I'm tempted to laugh in his face like the movie. And not appropriate. And I realize Jonah's not laughing. He's, he's scowling. I'm sorry, Jonah, I shouldn't have laughed. Um, and then... <laughs> And then I'd remember my counselor friends who've talked to me about things. I'd channel myself some, uh, you know, Ed Welch or David Pallison or John Sherwood or something. And then I'd wipe the smile off my face and say, wow, you must really, that plant must mean a lot to you, Jonah. Uh, (laughs) Something like that. I don't know. It's really important to you. But it's frightening. It's frightening that a prophet of God could have an attitude like this. It's frightening that my own attitude can be like it is sometimes about others, about myself. He's, he's totally consumed with himself, focused on himself, like he's the only person in the world. Therefore, he's the only one who deserves God's compassion. His pity is utterly misdirected. So he sits there looking out on this, this great city to God. I mean, four times in the book of Jonah, that word great is used throughout, including there in this chapter with his great despair and great uh, gladness. But this great, great, great city, to God. He's looking out on this. Important, one of the most important cities in the world. And he's hoping against hope that their repentance and their faith is a sham. And that God will, will wipe them out. And then, then the account ends. <laughs> it's very abrupt. This gentle rebuke from the Lord. 
question, should I not pity the people of Nineveh? That's that's how the book ends. What became of Jonah? We don't know. We don't know for sure. It may be that he had a change of heart and repented of this cold-hearted attitude that we see here in Jonah 4. After all, he's most think he is the one who wrote this account. It's not just about him, but it was penned by him. And, it, and if so, he didn't portray himself in a very good light. And so it, it, it suggests to me that perhaps maybe his bitter heart softened and his focus eventually turned from himself to others, but we really don't know for sure. Either way, we can be thankful this lesson is recorded for us and it's one we really need. He ends on this cliffhanger. This question. The book is a question for religious people like Jonah, like us. Do you care? Do you care? Do you care more for perishing people than you do for your stuff? Do you care more for others than for yourself? Do you impose limits on God as to the types of people that you're willing to care for, show compassion to? What do you you care most about? What do you get most upset about? What headlines really grab your attention and move your heart? All the tears you shed in 2017, if you shed any, what were they for? How much grief does the fate of lost people uh, bring to you? Do you have some of what Paul had in Romans 9, 1 to 3 there, where where he says, I have great sorrow an unending anguish in my heart for the sake of my kinsmen, lost Jewish people. For Jonah, the Ninevites really weren't people. They were a concept. They were just a big enemy city. And yet, this is why God points out there are 120,000 little kids there, Jonah. To God, they're people. They're souls. Do you know there are 2.2 billion Souls in the world who have never heard about Jesus. 2.2 billion. No exposure to the gospel. These are individuals just like you. They are made in the image of God just like you are. They experience pain and sadness and fear and hurt just like you. They, They love their children like you do. They know what it's like to be hungry and feel hopeless and be alone and lonely. These are people for whom going to hell will be every bit as much a tragedy as it would have been for you. Do we do we care? Do we care? I know we've got a team going to, to Bosnia uh, this summer, Lord willing, to go and support the, the long-term workers there that are in the trenches day in and day out, laboring because they care for the people of Bosnia and they want to see these people, these three and a half million people who, who've not heard of Christ and need and, and don't have life in him. I think they estimate about 2,000 Christians, evangelical Christians in Bosnia. Three and a half million people, 0.1%, really less than that. So we got a trip going. Let's, it's, Bosnia is not just a cool place to take a trip in the summer. I know you realize this and it's not highest on you know tourist destinations anyway but it's it's not and it's not a concept it's not a statistic it's not a stereotype it's not just 
you know, a third world country in Europe, and so we just kind of have this, yeah, I've always wanted to visit one of those. No. Does your heart break for the lost? That's the kind of people we need on this short-term team, I'll say. You, you might have abilities that can be used wonderfully, that's fine, but even if you don't think you do, your compassion can be used in a great way. Care for people. And so I hope and pray that we'll be able to send a small team of humble, big-hearted, Christ-loving, grace-enamored men and women to partner with our long-term workers there this summer. And I would encourage you to consider, if you've not turned in an application, we have the applications are due next week, and, and, and we'll be putting a team together. But if you're interested at all, you know, apply, and then we can, we can talk. Next Sunday, again, is the deadline. See Van you've got questions but regardless we are, 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 do we care is made is 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 the our likeness of Jonah increasing or is our likeness of God increasing father expand our vision to see the world as you see it father make us much less like Jonah and much more like Jesus and give us greater compassion for souls, for people. Help our hearts to be big with mercy like yours. Do, do whatever it takes. Do whatever heart surgery needs to happen inside of us, God, to replace our anger, to replace our fears and our prejudices and our hatred with love. And may, may our renewed hearts cause us to, to be burdened for souls around us, God to love those who are perishing. And Father, if they perish, as has been said, let it be with our arms wrapped around their knees. Give us hearts, Father, to gladly go with the good news of Jesus Christ. We know that, Father, that one greater than Jonah is here, Jesus Christ. And so as we sing um, and as we come to the table, help us to, to remember him, to worship him well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.